Welcome back to the Resurrection Church Podcast. This is a special episode in which I talk with my friend Mitchell Hawley about the first day of the meeting of the Southern Baptist Convention that took place today, um, June 15, and ended late this evening. The schedule got pushed back. It got really late, uh, but I wanted to be able to give a brief recap of the day. Um, So I invited my friend Mitchell Hawley, who did this with me last year at the annual convention meeting. Mitchell is a member at Third Avenue Baptist Church in Louisville, Kentucky. He is a two-time graduate of the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary, and uh, we both find ourselves in Southern Baptist life to one degree or another, so I thought it would be helpful to talk with Mitch about this. Um, and, and hopefully allow you to be able to know what happened at the first day of the annual meeting. Um, I will say it is late. Mitch and I were both tired and we recorded over the phone because he's in Kentucky. Um, so the audio quality is not as good. So I always think that I talk a little bit slow, so I, I don't know why someone wouldn't listen on two speed, but because we're both tired, and talking really slow, I would say you might want to listen on two speed. Um, And then there are some sections where Mitch gets a little bit more philosophical in his reflections on institutions and virtue and why the SBC has some of the problems that it does. So you may want to skip around a little bit. Uh, I might be able to go back and figure out all of the time splits if you're looking for particular topics. But in this episode, we talk about Uh, why the SBC has some of the problems it does. We talk about some of the controversial matters today, the vote for the SBC president for next year. We talked about the issue with Saddleback Church in the ordination of female pastors and some of the action that happened on the floor of the assembly today. And then we, of course, talked about the sexual abuse situation in the Southern Baptist Convention. I hope that this podcast episode will be helpful for you if you're trying to figure out what happened today and and perhaps how at least a couple of us are filtering these events. Thanks for listening. Welcome to a special edition of the Resurrection Church Podcast. Tonight, I'm joined with my friend Mitchell Hawley to discuss the first day of the annual meeting of the Southern Baptist Convention. Last year, Mitch and I did a two-part podcast tracking with each day of the annual convention meeting, and there were many, many requests for us to do it again. Just kidding. There was only one request for for this again. Um, we, we heard that voice. But we heard the voice. We care about every individual listener to our church podcast, and so we're... We will do an episode on anything that's no requests. We're back. We're back to talk about the 2022 Southern Baptist Convention Annual Meeting in Anaheim, California. Um, So Mitch, thank you for joining us on this special podcast episode. Yeah, it was a, uh, you know, being on the East Coast, this is a late one. Yeah, so maybe we should just briefly mention that every year the location of the annual meeting changes. And this year, because it's in California, everything's later anyway. And then today there was a delay. So everything got pushed back. So it's even later still. Yeah. Oh yeah. We're filming at 11, 12. It, and you're in Kentucky, 
so you're in an even later time zone than I am. So thank you for making the effort to be on the podcast tonight. Oh, oh, it's, you know, it's always good to have an excuse to, to, to chat. And it's always fun to talk about church and church politics. Well, for those who are listening, who are not part of Resurrection Church, you may not know, but our church is part of the Southern Baptist Convention and has been ever since its founding in 1967. So we have a long history as part of the Southern Baptist Convention. Um, But as Crystal Lake Road Baptist Church, now known as Resurrection Church, has gone through a bit of a restart process, we've connected primarily with the North American Mission Board of the Southern Baptist Convention, but we are made up of people who are, for the most part, part of a Southern Baptist church for the very first time. So I just want us to briefly give a layout of what the Southern Baptist Convention is, uh, both for those who are part of our church who are listening, who are new to the Southern Baptist Convention, and for any who might not know exactly what the Southern Baptist Convention is. So Mitch, why don't you help us understand what the Southern Baptist Convention is, um, along with maybe listing briefly the entities of the Southern Baptist Convention and how they relate to the actual convention that only exists for two days in a year. Right, right. So it's funny about the SBC is that, you know, it's a denomination. It's the largest Protestant denomination in the world. Um, but when you think of denomination, you, you, you tend to think of, you know, the big denominations like the Roman Catholic church or, you know, you know, maybe the Episcopal church. Um, and those denominations have a hierarchy of leadership. Uh, so their structure of governance is very, uh, you know, in the Catholic church, you've got the Pope at the top and then you've got, you know, a a whole council of bishops going all the way down to your local priest. And it's quite a large tree descending downwards. Um, and so it's very, you know, it's, it has its bureaucracies, but really the key takeaway that I'm trying to just make here is that those denominations, when you think of a denomination, you tend to think of that sort of top down approach um, in terms of how it's governed and, and how it makes decisions. Uh, the Southern Baptist convention or the Southern Baptist denomination, uh, you might think of it, is not like that at all. It's built upon, actually, one of its core features is the autonomy of each local church. And so what the denomination really is, is a convention. It's It's an association of all of these independent Baptist churches that are associating for the purposes of increasing their resources, like any denomination would, um, you know, for to plant Baptist churches, to educate Baptist pastors, to you know, even have a print wing, you know, and so that they a lot of the money that these churches pool together in association goes to seminaries. There's five seminaries around the country that are connected with the Southern Baptist um, Convention. There's also a printing wing. There's you know, there's a few other sort of institutions you know, that are part of the SBC, uh, but all of those are sort of funded by and cared for, uh, and in some ways stewarded by the Southern Baptist Convention. And because the convention of churches, it believes in autonomy, and as a denomination, they've organized that way, they have a meeting every year, every two years, of, um, every year, Every year, right, right, uh, where they 
do all of the business of the denomination in a two-day period. Now, so technically, the, the denomination only meets, it's only in session, it's only constituted for two days. And the rest of the year, it's, you know, each church is sort of doing its own thing because they're all autonomous. Uh, but for two days each year, they come together and they do the business of the convention. Now, during that business meeting, they'll elect a president and an executive committee, um, uh, people, and a lot of committees will have people left to them. So and, it's essentially uh, like a, a business meeting. Yeah, it's essentially a business meeting where you elect a bunch of people that will do the the actual business for the rest of the year. You know, so they'll go to meetings and you know they'll talk about budget and they'll you know allocate monies and you know meet out power uh, to certain individuals. Um, so it it functions a lot like a typical denomination. Uh, a lot of it is rep, it sort of mirrored in our a lot of our the, the way that the polity is organized and governed mirrors um, democracy in America uh, with a lot of sort of representative uh, democratic principles where there are representatives from each church that are sent as voting members that represent their own uh, church, right? So they're, those, those, they're called messengers are sent to the convention from each SBC church. Um, a church gets a certain amount of messengers, a certain amount of representatives, um, and they, you know, represent the, their little local instantiation of uh, the body of Christ in context of that, that big business meeting for two days. Yeah, so so there are other but there it is. Yeah, there are other entities that do the business of the convention throughout the year, but the convention only exists when it convenes for those two days. And right. um there are entities, these are just um you could almost think of them as their own corporations, you know. So yeah. you have like the executive committee of the Southern Baptist Convention that does the daily business of the convention. You have the International Mission Board that is concerned with foreign missions, the North American yeah. Mission Board, which is concerned with, well, North American missions. You have the yeah. Ethics and Religious Liberty Commission, which is concerned Maybe. with, um, I don't even know the best way to describe it. I talk about them like they're the public policy voice of the Southern Baptist Convention. So there's like yeah, lobbying right. politicians, making ethical statements. And it seems like every year there's a vote for them to be defunded or shut down or something. Yeah, and yeah. Um, so that's, a, you know, that <laughs> happened again this year. There's a vote tomorrow on, on that matter. Um, and then you have other corporations that are part of the Southern Baptist Convention, but don't receive giving directly from the churches. So right. things like the Lifeway publishing arm of the convention or Guidestone financial resources. Uh, but yeah. then you, you do have this large segment of the convention entities, which is made up of the six major seminaries, right? right. Um, so you, you have these, they are receiving funding from the churches. And in one way, they have outsized influence, I think, on the convention because they're theoretically raising up the pastors who are then primarily the ones who are coming to the meeting as messengers over time, or at sure. least theoretically. Yeah, yeah. 
yeah and that's yeah and that's why historically the seminaries have sort of been a a battleground in the convention for like when the the great so-called conservative resurgence in the SBC, you know, that occurred a couple decades ago now, um, was mainly fought uh, in the seminaries, you know, by getting rid of what was perceived then as a, you know, liberal professors who, uh, you know, were a threat to training up pastors, um, you know, in, in what the convention considered to be true and good orthodoxy. Uh, and so what that ended up producing was a number of pastors who graduated from these seminaries, a whole generation of pastors who graduated from these seminaries, went to Southern Baptist churches, and then those churches mirrored none of the priorities of some of the core members of, um, of the convention. And over time, you can imagine what sort of role those seminaries can play because they're training pastors and they're they are kind of are shaping what the, the Southern Baptist Convention is going to look like you know, 15, 20, 30 years from now. So they, they play a they play a pretty important role. Yeah, I, I think that's right. So I want to talk about a few uh, guiding issues to help the listeners be oriented to what happened today in particular, but also to help understand what's going on in the convention at large. So I want to start though, Mitch, by just talking about why there's this sense that there's so much division in the Southern Baptist Convention. I think those who are part of the convention, those who are outside of the convention, sense a lot of division within the convention. And um, some of that is just a natural part of having 47,000 Baptist churches who are prizing their individual autonomy, but coming together you know, that's just a natural fruit of the makeup of the convention. Uh, But it also seems like there are several groups within the convention that are sort of emerging with their own identities, some more formally, some less formally. But maybe you can talk through why that is and um, perhaps why we're seeing so many problems in the convention, at least in news headlines and... um, the general yeah. sense that the, the ethics of the convention might be a little bit messed up. Yeah. What's funny to me is that, you know, I just happened to glance at the Washington post today and it had a little, little thing on the SBC meeting today. And, uh, you know, it, I think in the piece, it was, a uh, it was trying to humorously describing the factions as a, a place where the far right debates with the far, far right. And, <laughs> okay. uh, in other words, there it's just like you got really, really conservatives, like hard right people, and then you've got people who are just like marginally less hard right, but still hard right by any other standard. And that I think is the perception. But and you know some of that may be very well be true. But um, you know if I were trying to be charitable, I would say that on every single issue, you know, because one of the core values of this SBC is church autonomy. You know, as many churches as make up the FBC, that's how many opinions exist on every particular issue. You know, so some churches are going to, you know, when uh, last convention, when like critical race theory was such a big issue, you know, there are, there were some churches and messengers who were like, you know, yeah, we love critical race theory. And then there were some churches definitely 
who were like, ah, we actually think that that's from Satan. And then you've got all sort of perspectives in between where some churches are like, you know, I don't know, but like, let's, let's at least talk about it. And then, the, you know, churches on the other side, if you talk about it, you worship Satan, you know? So I, that I'd be a little bit uh, hyperbolic, but um, I think that illustrates the point that it, it's a pretty group, diverse group now because uh, there's such diversity in the autonomy of the uh, of, of each individual church, or because there's so much focus on autonomy, uh, and there's so much diversity. Um, in order to r- raise the the possibility that your that your particular views are going to win out in this agora, this marketplace of ideas, um, it's very possible that, and this is what we have seen in the last two years, groups of churches uh, are really groups of pastors. Cause I'm sure most of the people in these churches don't give a crap about what's happening. Cause they're just, you know, trying to put food on the table and, you know, trying to like love their wives and love their kids, you know, uh, but pastors um, are getting together and forming sort of associations, groups, um, tribes within the SBC in order to wield greater influence. You know, so the biggest example of this is, uh, help me with the name, Aaron, the conservative, what is it? The conservative. I think it's called the Conservative Baptist Network. Right, the Conservative Baptist Network. So this is the group of churches who are pretty, who are relatively like-minded on several social um, and political issues. And I, uh, frankly, maybe this is a pessimistic read, but it, I think that what has occurred here is these churches feel very strongly about a select, not, not churches, again, pastors. These pastors feel very passionate about a select group of conservative, really kind of far right issues, frankly. Um, and so in order to make sure that they can exert influence in the convention, they sort of bind together and they produce podcasts and they write things and they have their own little website you know, and they have people who are in the network who like visit other churches and like propagandize. And I don't think all propaganda is bad. You know, we live in a world full of propaganda from, you know, from every angle, but I'm just saying literally propagandize on, on behalf of, you know, their particular positions. So yeah, there's inevitably factions are going to emerge. Right. And Mm -hmm. I think what you see most clearly is the, the biggest, loudest faction is this conservative church network. Um, and then you've got, a, you know, a, just a bunch of people who are maybe on the more educated side uh, in terms of just years spent in seminary, um, maybe a little bit more moderate, uh, who are less concerned with exercising, you know, maybe a little bit younger even, or less concerned about forming a network to like raise their influence and concerned just about sort of like participating at like a base level. And so the reality is those sort of moderate voices don't really have a network in the same way that's, you know, producing content and, and, and trying to influence the rest of the convention. Um, so there, there really is kind of one tribe and then a bunch of other you know, loosely connected, not well-organized groups, but you can't really, you know, that may be more moderate, more or less moderate or whatever. Um, you know, but again, the, the, the real one to think about is just the 
conservative church network that's pretty active and influential. Influential by the, you know, we can see how influential they are in the last two years, their nominee for president uh, of the SBC has been very close to winning, right? So this year mm -hmm. they got, you know, the Tom Askell um, got 40, 38 point something percent, you know, almost 40% of the vote. And last year, Mike Stone, who was a scrupulous character, uh, you know, got even more votes than that uh, as a percentage. Um, and it's a little hard to understand the data there, you know, and how big this network is and how influential they are, you know, but in California, where most of their messengers, in most of the churches, most of the messengers from churches that, you know, are part of that conservative network probably didn't make it out to California, um, you know, for whatever reason, distance, time, not wanting to get infected by California, whatever, uh, you know, they maybe not, but, but yet their candidates still sort of won 40% of the vote. It, it's hard to know like how big that group is really. Yeah, it's tough because at this annual convention, there are only about half as many registered voters as there were at last year's. So we're right. dealing with percentages, but it's hard to know where people are being drawn from and how much location has changed things in terms yeah. of what's represented by the percentages. But I think what I hear you saying on, on the one hand is that a lot of the worst of what you see in the meetings of the convention is that pastors are acting the way that their church members act sometimes in business meetings that they hate that they're acting that way, right? Yeah. So they take on the worst kind of posture and charisma in these meetings, and they come across almost as belligerent sometimes. And then also, I would say maybe sometimes the people on the platform are doing the same thing, you know, so oh, yeah. there's often not just a bad look, but it's an unfair representation of the churches themselves because it's the pastors maybe, or some highly invested members who have come that maybe aren't truly representing the whole church. Yeah, uh, absolutely. And, you know, at the end of the day, those who sit at the top of every denomination are going to be have engaged in some sort of acting like a politician. It, it's just, mm -hmm. it's just inevitable, you know, um, you're going to have to be a little bit of a politician to be at the top of any denomination. Just like if you're at the top of any business, you're going to have to be a little bit of a politician. Now that's not necessarily a bad character. I'm not trying to use that pejoratively, um, but it's, it's a little bit of a reality, um, you know, and, but also because each church autonomous, there's less desire um, and necessity that everyone agrees Mm -hmm. right because this isn't like one denomination presenting a unit or this isn't you know like one church all year round you know they're a bunch of angry little children that all get together for a couple <laughs> weekends <laughs> or one two days that was, that was a bad metaphor but you get my point they're yeah you know, it's like trying to herd cats in there yeah and i like to tell people you know if there are truly forty-seven thousand churches in the southern baptist convention and every church automatically gets two messengers. That is, they can send two people to vote at the annual meeting. I don't right. know what 47 times two is. You know, I think it's like 94,000 or something. So theoretically, you could have a convention with 94,000 people voting. 
But yeah. at this convention, for instance, there are like 8,000 people voting. Well, when when the Southern Baptist Convention decides something at the annual meeting, it's not actually that representative of the full membership of the convention. It's yeah. representative of the churches that are highly invested and able to send messengers to the meeting. So even there, it is a little tough for, in my mind to say that the annual meeting um, represents the beliefs and feelings of the Southern Baptist Convention, but it does, it definitely dictates the actions of the Southern Baptist Convention because that's where decisions start to happen. Yeah, I guess my only pushback would be, I think there obviously is an engagement bias, right? Those who are most engaged are going to be, you know, put in the time to go. They may even be able to send more than two messengers, depending on what their church is like giving to the cooperative program. Mm -hmm. um, you know, so there's going to be definitely an engagement bias. You know, those who are highly engaged are going to be more likely to participate. Um, yeah. And therefore, excuse, but but, you know, I do think statistically there's pretty good representation. You know, a lot of churches are just sending their pastor and they just put it in the budget. They say, hey, we're going to be the SBC. Like the pastor's got to go every year. And even though you have two messengers, only one of you are going, just the head pastor, a lot of small churches. Um, so I, I do think there's actually some decent yeah, but, I mean, representation, even... but it skews, like it skews yeah. towards those churches that are sort of all about it and make it a priority, like, want or want to exert influence yeah because if a representative from every one of the forty-seven thousand churches showed up you would have forty-seven thousand voting members there and sure, but, you, you only know, have like eight thousand right like here. you know you can get an idea of like what paul like how like people like joe biden or not just by yep. making two or three thousand calls as long as those two or three thousand calls are you know sufficiently diverse and demographic and and class yeah. and status, etc. You know, it's like yeah, it analysis. can be representative, but it's not definitive. Maybe is what I'm trying to get at. Sure. Yeah. And I, in where I would agree. Now, this is a petty point that we're disagreeing about, but I would just say that there's a big, <laughs> like to your point. There's an engagement bias. You know, there's. I, I do think it's maybe more representative than maybe maybe you're giving it credit. Yeah, that but could be. There's definitely an engagement. Yeah. No, I think certain groups. Yeah, I think something that's interesting, though, is we look at the way that there's unification and division within the SBC, is that it's not so much over doctrinal positions, like the doctrine of salvation or something, soteriology, you know, Arminians yeah. and Calvinists or something in that classic divide, but it's really more on the ground of social action. Am I right in in kind of picking up that these divisions are for the most part, not deeply theological, but more social. Um, I think there's a lot of truth to what you're saying. The only thing that, you know, pushes back against that a little bit is just the saddleback issue this year and last year, you know, yeah, which is and we'll that, get I mean, into that a little, in a, in a yeah. few minutes. But yeah, yeah. We'll come back to that. But that's also has, you know, it's a little bit theological, a little bit sociological, you know, a little bit mm -hmm. cultural, right? Um, but but actually, yes, I mean, you know, there's there's a Baptist faith and message, which is a, a creedal confessional sort of document that uh, the SBC churches agree to when they join the SBC. Uh, and so at the end of the day, 
they there's some there's some diversity allowable in that document it can be sort of read a few different ways and i think that's on purpose um you know but these are largely churches that are have already agreed to this statement of faith and it's pretty conservative um and therefore when they do get together the things that you you know you argue about is the things where there's the most disagreement um mm -hmm. you know which is how your theology works its way out in the polity yeah, broadly in society yeah so and i think that's this where is... a lot of the issues sort of land right because you know good people can both you know people can believe that salvation is by grace through faith but maybe disagree about how justification is going to work its way out in yeah. society you know yeah and i think um i think i agree with that i'm and especially as we talk about the Saddleback issue in a moment, I think that's true. You know, that's a blend of cultural, sociological, and theological issues at play. But yeah. when you look at the candidates for president, when you look at the people who are troubled by having Guidestone do an internal investigation and following the recommendations of the Sexual Abuse Task Force, those divisions aren't neatly along theological camps, so to speak. It seems like people from various theological positions are dividing and they're finding greater unity in their conclusions about those issues than I think like 10 years ago, maybe they would have said all of that would be on the side. What we care about is that we're Calvinists or that we're Arminians or that we yeah. have nine marks church polity. And it seems like yeah. those kinds of things have less uniting power now than they did 10 years ago. You know, maybe the dissolution of together for the gospel is also indicative of something like this. I'd, I'd be yeah. interested in, in hearing what you think about that. I mean, I, th I think I largely, uh, you know, agree. I think it's hard to divorce like the current, situatedness of the SPC in the political climate that it's in you know uh we're in a kind of a cultural moment right now where there is a sort of grand reshaping of of loyalties on a political level um, democrat republican there's not really a moderate uh as the sort of political gun of the executive branch gets bigger and bigger and bigger. In other words, as you know, the executive branch gets a little bit more, you know, they have controlled more money and things like that. Then, you know, I've, I've read a few studies that um, it's not that Democrats and Republicans hate each other. It's that when the, when the, when the government gun is perceived to be bigger then the, there's just more anxiety about, who gets to hold that gun you know who gets to have people in power who gets to have people mm -hmm. uh you know as the president or you know the who's how many judges are we going to have right who, who who so be as government institutions become more and more politicized uh there's naturally going to follow um uh, all the other institutions that are trying to influence culture right you know the, the southern baptist convention just like any other denomination has things to say about abortion and they want to influence society in a particular way, right? But then the question is, those aren't things we've partnered around. So there's lots of disagreement about how the church should respond to abortion, how the church mm -hmm. should respond to 
uh, you know, trans, the transgender movement. Um, and that's where the, the, that's where the debates are going to happen. Uh, and that's where they tend to, they tend to have happened so far. And I think, but I think that that's a res little bit of results of, um, you know, uh, the, just the political climate and there's no, there's no genuine freedom not to be political anymore. You know, what mm -hmm. coffee you buy is a political statement. You know, if you wear like Nike clothes, that's a political statement. It, you, you may not want it to be, but in the polis that we currently live in, you know, the, the, those are considered by a large majority of people to be a political statement. And so we're not, we're not free. We don't have the freedom to like disengage from politics mm -hmm. in our sort of industrial society right now. Um, there was one great philosopher or semi-great philosopher who, you know, talked about uh, a modern society, the technocratic technological society, I think was the name of the book. Um, and he, you know, talks about this idea that we're not, we're not able to be free humans anymore because we're forced to be political beings. Anyway, yeah, that, it, that, that, that took a different turn, but. Well, and I think, you know, that relates a little bit to some of like the way minor controversies of the day. So for example, this independent investigative group guide guide post um, yeah. did, did this investigation into the executive committee's handling of sexual abuse. And apparently they tweeted out something in support of LGBTQ plus. So then there was a response by many in the meeting today saying we should disassociate with this investigative group. Yeah. While all the while, you know, of course, ignoring the fact that the external legal counsel for the Southern Baptist Convention for the last 60 years also is like making statements in support of these things. So even in the way yeah. that we as churches deal with any outside organizations, they're also operating as political entities, so to speak. So sure. they're going to say things that you do sometimes like, and that you don't like at other times, and you can't really escape it. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Now, I, I mean, I wish that we weren't, but the, the reality is there's a, each political faction in America and each sort of political faction in the SBC has their own kingdom behind their own, their eyes. They, they, you know, each have different competing, competing ideas of what the good is and mm -hmm. uh, how that good should be attained. And it should be legislated. Should we force people to act morally? You know, should we create laws, you know, or should we be more slow in how we do that? So yeah, absolutely. You know, we're, we're, we're caught up in, in this and the SBC, I think is caught up in this without a doubt. Yeah. I, I think want it'll to hurt, us, uh, hurt the SBC in the long run, honestly. Um, but. Yeah. Yeah. And I think I agree with you. And we obviously can't tell the future, but I think there's a trajectory that can be seen and tracked and it's not heading in a, in a great direction. Yeah. Um, and, and I want to shift a little bit into why is that? Why is it that um, we have some of these problems in the SBC, especially when the SBC's entire purpose is to perform functions that are deeply treasured by the church and um, deeply embedded in the church's history, reaching all the way back to the days of the apostles of evangelism and mission and, and these other sorts of things. Yeah. You know, when, when asked why SBC, uh, you know, because, you know, everything that the SBC decides 
each individual church can just decide, yeah, I, I don't want to abide by that. Or I, you know, I agree with the Baptist face of message, but we're not going to contribute to the cooperative program or, you know, mm-hmm. we're not going to, um, you, you know, we're not going to support that resolution, you know, that you made, which is basically meaningless, you know? So when asked why SBC, ultimately the answer you're going to get is effectiveness. Uh, well, we can effectively um, build the kingdom. We can, uh, by partnering together, we can uh, you know, send more missionaries, that many more missionaries if we pool our money. We can create, hire that many more professors at the seminaries uh, to educate pastors. We can do more for the kingdom together. So efficiency, effectiveness is the justification. You know who is famous for, for making this sort of same logical jump was uh, uh, Max Weber, uh, who is a sociologist who studied institutions uh, in, in Germany. And uh, he particularly stud- studied management and how uh, management styles are justified. And typically, management styles are justified based upon efficiency, ability to produce something. And so, uh, there's an important critique given to that sort of justification by Alistair McIntyre, who's a moral philosopher, um, who, uh, you know, from, from the UK, um, who makes the point that, uh, management and the authority of management when it's only justification is efficiency is sort of a, an immoral thing. It's an immoral justification because it allows for, manipulative social relations you you, you're allowed to let whatever the manager can do whatever he wants to whomever as long as it's efficient Mm -hmm. Uh, and as long as it's able so in other words the efficiency pragmatic case it may be it may make some pragmatic sense but if that's your only justification for the institution then it I would make the case with Alistair McIntyre that that institution is prone to an immoral abuse of and ultimately manipulation by the institution. Um, in other words, an institution must have a higher calling than mere a pragmatic, you know, reason why it exists. Mm-hmm. Uh, but ultimately, when you know, when you ask why SBC, we get, and I've heard thousands of times, well that we're just able to do so much. And, and that, if that's not the highest level articulation, that's certainly the top level, uh, the popular explanation for the SBC. Yeah, and I think that's right. And it's obviously often connected to the Great Commission. We can do more together in terms of fulfilling the Great Commission than we can do apart. I think that's that's what I generally hear. And I'm always conflicted about that because I think on the one hand, there is that caution against the idol of efficiency and just saying, well, let's come together because we can just be more efficient. I mean, Jesus, I think, is intensely practical, but not always efficient in his ministry. And so maybe there's something that gets lost when we take the commission he gives and we maximize it. Um, So I think what you're hitting on is that institutions need to have virtuous functions and they have to yeah. function virtuously. You know, they need virtuous leaders. And, and maybe some of that 
is lacking in the SBC. Right. I mean, yeah, and this, you're just continuing on the logic of Alistair McIntyre here as he's talking about uh, what an institution should be and what it should do, you know, because ultimately what should be, what, what institutions are supposed to do is they're supposed to be stewards of, uh, of practices. But let me take a step back. If you're justifying an institution primarily on the basis of efficiency, then you're justifying an institution based upon external goods. So things like money, status, numbers, things that are outside of the individual, of the self. Uh, I don't think any sort of, if that's the governing principle of any sort of institution, there, that's going to have a corrupting influence. If your only goal is external goods, because if your goal, if your business and your goal is money, then who cares what you pay people? Who cares what your business practices is? As long as you get that external good of money, then you know you're good. Or if your job is status, you know, and that, and you're trying to elevate the status of particular individuals, and that's your main goal, and you're trying to pursue that external good, then who cares about your, um, you know, how you your, your sort of business practices, how you run, what sort of people you elevate to power. Um, it, it's your, your only goal is to establish power. So anytime you have an institution that's governed by and pursued and justified by external goods, it is prone towards corruption. Mm-hmm. And Alistair McIntyre makes the point that institutions must be uh, oriented towards creating and habituating internal goods, virtues, things like living well in the world. You know, things like truth, things like, you know, we, you know, we could go on and on, but, um, and so ultimately an institution should be stewarding practices, ways of, ways of living that are cultivating a virtuous people. And that means that an institution must always be run by virtuous people. You know, a great example that Alistair McIntyre used uh, is uh, a chess player. So a chess player is engaged in the practice of playing chess. And there's two ways to motivate that that chess player. You know, if he's a little kid, uh, you can first give him candy. That would be an external good. And uh, by giving him candy, you might motivate him to engage in playing chess. But that ultimately what will kind of take over is a child's love for the game. They're just pure enjoyment. Maybe they love the friendship with the other players. Maybe they love the camaraderie. They love the, 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 the skill and, and it, it, uh, that, that's required. Uh, but just by the pure love of the game, they'll engage in that practice of playing chess. If you have a, a let's say a bunch of people who are play chess and they love it for the game, they get together and they form a chess club, okay? And this chess club is coming up with rules of how to play and what it looks like to be sportsmanship, to have sportsmanship. Um, if that chess club starts elevating players who are not virtuous, players who cheat, players who um, are effective at winning games, but who break the rules, then that institution is corrupting the practice as it was originally conceived. It may be achieving external goods, money, 
status, power, but it's not achieving internal goods. I think we can make the same argument about the SBC. When you have a bureaucratic agency, an institution that is lifting up and elevating the wrong type of people, the wrong type of practices, and focusing on external goods only, whether that's new churches or converts or whatever, those are external goods and not focused on internal goods, like creating a, a, a virtuous community of Christians who are engaged in like loving, uh, loving their neighbor and loving God with all their heart, soul, and mind, then that institution will always be prone towards rejecting the internal goods that are central to a Christian life. And that institution will tend towards only pursuing external goods. Um, and then that becomes in the main mode of justifying that sort of institu institution is effectiveness. And I think what, I mean, frankly, one of my big critiques of the SBC is that we've kind of become a little bit on the surface level. I'm sure if you ask the right people in leadership, they would say, no, 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 the SBC doesn't exist primarily to plant churches. The SBC exists primarily to steward the truth, to create virtuous communities of, of Christians in their local churches. If you ask the right people, they might say that. But it's also the case that a majority of people are going to say, um, at both a pop level and, you know, at a higher, um, you, know, uh, you know, more managerial level, they're going to say, well, so we can plant churches. And I think that's very problematic um, as we start to think about what an institution is and the role that it's going to play in stewarding the church as it tries to live well in the world. And therefore, all of our argument, and, and that's why one of our arguments becomes, you know, can we be effective ministers of the truth if, you know, if everyone, you know, if, you know, we have women pastors or if we have, uh, if we embrace critical race theory or, or whatever, um, it's, it's frankly a little bit, it's a little bit troubling <laughs> and an institution must always exist. All right. Let me, let me say it another way. Practices, you know, the Christian life, they constitute the Christian life will always rely on institutions. And so it's vitally important that we think about our institutions are stewarding what we conceive of in the SBC as a genuine Christian life. Yeah, and I think if we look at SBC history, probably the whole impetus for the formation of the convention was not the cultivation of a virtuous Christian community, but a multiplication of churches or evangelistic efforts or something. And so there has been, at least in my experience, an emphasis on the stats that happen every year and less yeah. on the quality of the life that's being cultivated together. And, you know, there's good and bad in that probably. Maybe yeah. I think you and I would suggest sometimes there's more bad than good in right. that. But I think this discussion raises a few questions related to some things that happen today. So for example, we might ask then, are the SBC leaders virtuous? And that question is hard to answer because there are so many entities and so many leaders within the denomination. But the focus today was on the leadership of the Southern Baptist Convention in terms of the president-elect. 
And there were multiple nominees for the office of the president for next year. Um, And as I understand it, the most important role that the president of the SBC has is twofold. One, he appoints people to certain committees. And then second, he sort of provides the tenor or the feel of the annual meeting because he's like the point guy throughout the next year's annual meeting. Uh, But the most lasting power is in the power to nominate individuals to certain positions. Is that correct? Yeah, I think that's probably the only one worth talking about. (laughs) Um, You know, because the other one, you know, he's a pastor of pastors, I suppose, is what some people might call him. You know, but setting the tone, you know, who knows what Rando is going to stand up, you know, when the open mic hits there and is going to propose something. So, you know, he may or may not succeed. And frankly, I, I have, in my time in the SPC, I have not seen them succeed in like setting some sort of tone. Uh, but what I have seen is them, the, the lasting change they've, they have made have been, you know, appointing people to, to committees. And the reality is even the president is pretty limited and who he can appoint, you know, mm-hmm. he can't compo- appoint everyone in the executive committee. I don't think no, or the no. committee on committees, um, you know, so. Yeah. So I just briefly want to outline who the presidential nominees were this year and how the election turned out. Sure. Um, and I just want to briefly give my like very short description of my feel of the guy and you can add in anything you want. Um, yeah. I, I don't know any of these people personally, and I'm not that connected in the SBC, so I don't, I don't really know. You know, you and I are both members of SBC churches. You're, you're a member at a church that's more involved in the Southern Baptist world than, than sure. yeah. I am. Right. Yeah. Um, but we've both been part of Southern Baptist seminaries. We at different times in our lives have had Twitter accounts. So, so we're at least aware of who some of these people are. Um, but the, the first nominee was a guy named Bart Barber. And I would just say this guy is like farmer, pastor, peacemaker vibe, kind of like old school Southern Baptist in terms of probably more like Arminian theology, smaller church, more tribally yeah. Southern Baptist. Uh, yeah. Is that right? Yeah, I think this is the sort of, I guess, the moderate candidate. <laughs> to the extent that any of them are like super moderate you know he you know more you know not as dogmatic on like the societal social issues um you know he's going to be your milk toast milk uh you know sort of frankly i I don't know i i could be totally wrong there maybe he's like super dynamic super type a but that's not my impression and to be clear, neither of us have met any of these candidates. So we're just, sort no, of just speculating what I, what based I've, on the general. Theme. What I've read and, 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 you know, I know more about the other candidates than I do. Now, now, Bart Barber was one of two primary candidates. There were four um, yep. and there, there was an initial vote and no one got a high enough percentage to make it. So the top two candidates proceeded. And it's these right. two main guys, Bart Barber, and then another guy named Tom Askell, who we've already referenced, and he's sort of a leader in what I would call the fundamentalist resurgence vibe. So if what Moeller was involved in 30, 35 years ago go, is called the conservative resurgence, I would say that Tom Askell in the conservative Baptist network with which he's highly associated 
would represent a fundamentalist resurgence because I think some of the things they've said would identify Al Mohler as a liberal or, yeah, or they pretty, pretty much say that he's a liberal, even though I think he's not even center in the Southern Baptist convention. I'd say he's right of center in terms yeah. of the churches in the Southern Baptist convention. Uh, but yeah. Tom Askell would be like right, right of center. And I've heard people talk about the conservative Baptist network as what MAGA kind of is in the Republican party, though maybe now there's right. a good argument that MAGA is the Republican party. Um, but it they, he'd be sort of viewed as a fringe way to the right candidate who's had a surprising amount of really good marketing actually, and yeah. really loud voice. Yeah. Yeah. I, I would, I think that you've painted him very well. I think the reality is, he is a sort of crazy uh, right wing, not right wing in any sort of good way. I mean, sort of a radical. Um, and it would be very problematic if uh, I think if he were elected president or if the conservative, I mean, just speaking real frankly here, since we're giving our own opinions, our own hot takes, full of hot takes, nothing but hot takes today. Um, you know, I've, I've lost the ability to, uh, to be uh, moderate in my, commentary on this anymore well it is really late so hopefully (laughs) people will forgive us yeah i it would be very in my mind it would be like pretty close to a worst case scenario if uh tom askell decided or was able to was nominated thankfully he wasn't I mean, he was nominated, but he didn't win. Oh, right. Yeah, he didn't win. Sorry. Um, so there was, there was a third nominee named Robin Hathaway, who I just described as an old missionary cat. So he, he has been in foreign missions for a long time. He's now an adjunct professor at Midwestern, but I think he lives in California, maybe. Anyway, yeah. I think kind of an old guy who was like, we need to get the SBC back to what it originally cared about, which is missions. Um, sure. Any anything to add for him? I know nothing of this man. That's why he got it, what four percent of the vote. Yeah. Well, he. Yeah. And then there was a late ad as of today. A guy was nominated. A guy yeah. named Frank Cox or Cross. Yeah. I don't. I don't remember. I don't recall. But, yeah, I've forgotten um, already. He was pretty. He was. He was. He was one of those also rands. Yeah, rando guy, pretty forgettable, but I think probably like a recognizable name if you've been part of the SBC for a long time. Sure. Um, neither that guy nor the missions guy got really any amount of the vote. Together, they got 16 or 17% of the initial pass. And it was just enough of a percentage that neither of the other Perfect candidates the other got more majority. than 50%. So. Yeah. Um, so there was a revote and Bart Barber won pretty decidedly in my opinion. I mean, he won it like 60% and Askell had like 38%. And then there were a couple, I think maybe some votes were not cast correctly or something. So you didn't quite get 15 votes for turn were, were, were passed away. So, yeah. So, so I think, you know, it's a large number for Askell in the conservative Baptist network, uh, but not dis, you know, not close, in my opinion. Yeah, it's tough to say. I don't know. I, I think demographics can skew that a little. So it, it, it's really, I don't know. 
I, I think we need we would need a more uh, intensive demographic study of uh, maybe an exit poll or two that yeah. would uh, <laughs> so uh, give us a the, better idea. Yeah. So the presidential vote happened. It's done. I think I'm fine. You know, I don't know that I know any of the candidates well enough to really be bullish about them. I think I'm glad that Bart Barber won simply because I didn't really like any of the other candidates, um, but not because I necessarily would have picked him as a candidate. So it's one of those things where I'm like, is he better than our current president? Well, I don't think he's plagiarizing sermons. So yeah. hopefully <laughs> he's not a mega church pastor. So maybe he's more representative of the average Southern Baptist church, if you care about that. Um, yeah. But it it's kind of like, ah, I don't, I don't know what to think about this. I, I really don't care too much about that, yeah. but I'm glad Barber won over against the other candidates. Yeah. I think at the end of the day, the big win here is that Tom Askell didn't, uh, didn't, didn't make win it actually the presidency. Yeah. yeah, that's the uh, that's the big takeaway. Yeah. So then I want to shift our conversation a little bit to a couple of the primary issues that surfaced today. And yeah. the the first one is the debate about saddleback church and female pastors. So if you're not aware of the fact that saddleback church pastored by famous pastor Rick Warren is actually part of the Southern Baptist Convention and has been yeah. their whole ministry. <laughs> For a long time. Yeah. You know, you wouldn't have known it maybe, but um, the Saddleback and the SBC have been partnered together for a long time. Mm-hmm. And in in the recent past, I think within the last year, Saddleback appointed or ordained three female pastors um, and their children's pastors. So, you know, it's there, there was a lot of media releases about the Southern Baptist church ordaining women, which is contrary to the Baptist faith and message, the statement of faith of the Baptist Southern Baptist convention, which says that only men, you know, qualified men can serve in the office of the pastor. Well, there's a credentialing committee of the Southern Baptist Convention that evaluates whether or not they should disfellowship churches. That is, they should remove them from the Southern Baptist Convention. And in the meeting today, a representative from that credentialing committee said, we don't have enough information to know if we should disfellowship Saddleback or not over this issue. So they essentially called on the Southern Baptist Convention to authorize a study of the terminology of what a pastor is. Yeah. And this was met That's with trash. Yeah, it was met with the, the exact kind of response that Mitch had. <laughs> and um, then, you know, Al Moeller jumped up right away and said, this is silly. Like we, we spoke clearly in the Baptist Faith and Message 2000. They need to be disfellowshipped. But then another Southern Baptist Seminary president, Adam Greenway, stood up and said we shouldn't reject their call for a study, but we need to modify it a little bit so that the study isn't focusing on the title of the pastor, but on the language that's in the constitution of the Southern Baptist Convention that says churches are in um, fellowship with the convention if their faith and practice are in substantial agreement with the Baptist faith and message. 
and Greenway saying, we need to investigate what we actually mean by substantial agreement. Because right. what that term says is that it's okay if you disagree with some sections of the Baptist faith and message. And Greenway is just pointing out, well, we've made one section, men is the only gender qualified yeah. to be pastors, as something that you must agree with while you can disagree with other sections. So, you know, the way that I'm assuming people responded to this was, first of all, questioning, are Moeller and Greenway now like pursuing opposite visions for the convention? Yeah. Um, I think some people responded by saying, well, why would we even try to investigate what past, what a pastor is? That's so liberal and silly. And I, and I would want to defend that really briefly, not because I'm necessarily trying to, I, I just want to explain why that might be a question. And, and this is what I'm trying to say is at our church at resurrection church, we say a pastor and an elder and an overseer are all the same thing. Um, yeah. But there are some churches that will have staff positions that they call a pastor position, but they don't let that pastor function as an elder. And so in our terminology, we might call that just a ministerial position, a non-biblical office. You know, it's not even an office. It's just a staff position. And it seems maybe that's what this church was doing. But I think maybe there's an even deeper argument where there's a division where, where people say there's the gift of a pastor that's different than the office of the pastor. So they'll point to like Ephesians, um, chapter two, I believe, where Paul says that Christ has gift or Ephesians one, sorry, where, where Paul has gifted the church, you know, prophets, evangelists, pastor, teachers, you know, a whole other list of, of gifts right. to the church. And we would say some of those are not offices of the church now. And, and the response is, well, then they're gifts of the church that are still in practice. And I think that's more of what Saddleback's going for. So, so I would want to suggest that the use of the pastor label is like, they're, they're doing something very confusing and unhelpful, but also we shouldn't be so quick to say that the, the position that they created means what we mean when we say pastor, it might mean something more like minister. Yeah. Yeah, and I, I'd be fair point. Yeah, the scripts that are running for us or the, for the typical Baptist church might be the, a, a different, when we use the word pastor, it might be a different set of scripts that are running for someone else. Uh, you know, maybe at Saddleback when they use the word pastor, valid. But I think that's what Adam Greenway was trying to get at when he's like, we need to, what is it, we need to talk about substantial agreement. Like mm-hmm. whether or not someone's called pastor or not is actually not the issue. And, I, and actually, I'm not defending the Baptist based mission. Greenway, Bowler, or anyone. I'm just trying to say that I think Greenway is is trying to get to this core of the issue, which is not. Or did they use the word pastor? <laughs> but are they in agreement with what the Baptist based message? In substantial agreement with the Baptist based message, and that's why actually I don't think. I mean, maybe I, I didn't watch it. I just kind of read about it afterwards. But I actually don't think, knowing both of those people, Moeller and Greenway, I don't actually think they're in substantial disagreement. I think if I know Greenway at all, and I only know him from a distance, then he's like a very exacting, sort of like by the rules, 
like parliamentarian sort of uh, role playing mm -hmm. person. And so, you know, my guess is he's sort of fishing for the exact um, parliamentary rules that need to be ev evaluated such that, uh, you know, Saddleback Church is, is kicked out or whatever, you know, it, maybe he's trying to even guide, you know, not trying to reveal, play his cards there, but just trying to be a good parliamentarian, you know, let the proceedings go. But I think he was getting at the procedural things that needed to be in place such that when evaluated, there would be an actual decision about Saddleback, not just a, well, we know the word pastor means now, you know, which is yep. what the committee sounded like he was trying to do. Um, and I'm not taking a position. I'm just trying to be descriptive here because I kind of don't care. But the um, I do think it was funny when Dr. <laughs> Dr. Bullard is funny to me because, um, you know, he was obviously around for the conservative resurgence and like a central uh, um, uh, issue in the conservative resurgence was the role of uh, like women pastors. And so with Dr. Moeller later, like was part of the committee that revised the Baptist face of message in 2000, they like that committee and he being one of them, like one of the leading members, I have no doubt in my mind that he had, he, he thought that this was clear. <laughs> and, uh, yeah. and so the fact that he gets up there is like, listen guys, if we're going to parse out every word in here, you know, every word and, and have a committee about what a pastor is, I mean, good, good Lord. God save us, I think is what he said. Something like that. Um, yeah, yeah. And obviously- if, if you know Dr. Moeller in the history there, it's just, it's kind of funny. Yeah, and he's a fellow church member with you. So perhaps you'll run into him and, and talk about this. But I think I, I there's maybe one way of reading what Greenway was doing, which is to say, no, we should be okay with female pastors. I think the other way of reading what he was doing, which is maybe what you're saying, is that he cares about the details and the rules. So he's maybe working to say, if we don't clarify this, it's just going to sit with the credentialing committee and nothing is going to happen because they're going to say, we don't have enough clarity to act, but yeah. we can force the issue and make a clear, decisive statement about what you must or must be in agreement with in the Baptist faith and message in what you can sort of be flexible in, um, yep. such as, you know, someone from the floor mentioned the fact that a lot of Southern Baptist churches don't require baptism for participation in the Lord's Supper, even though the Baptist faith and message says you must be baptized to participate in the Lord's Supper. So yep. I, I sort of would read it as Greenway, just operating with a different political calculus than Moeller. Moeller yeah. is probably feeling like, I'm back in the 1970s 90s, or whatever, yeah, yeah, whatever, and I need to <laughs> shut this thing down right now. Um, yeah. In green ways, like, hey, we have a way to cement whatever we want in terms of clarification for the future, and we can't let yeah. this opportunity pass us by shutting it down. So maybe right. they would be seeking the same ends, just with different means of getting there. Yeah, I have no doubt in my mind that that's the right read. <laughs> yeah, I have no idea. I've never met Dr. Greenway, um, so I, I have no idea what his position is. Um, in, a, I think he's a parliamentarian. I think he's a the guy. I think he I think he reads rule books for fun. I think that he just yeah. really loves that. Yeah. So I so initially I thought I think there is way more heat than light, so to speak 
on this issue that came up today. I think maybe there's going to be way more fallout from this than what actually was going on in the room. Um, but when this was brought up for reconsideration later in the day, um, the president of the convention leading the meeting invited Rick Warren to speak from the floor, which I believe is out of order. And he called it like a, a point of courtesy or something. So I think according yeah. to Robert's rules, this shouldn't have happened. Um, but Rick Warren was yeah. given the floor and he sort of gave this speech and you know, I don't have anything for or against Rick Warren. I've never interacted with his stuff. I don't really know what he's all about, but he kind of started out being like, hey, I'm not going to defend my position, but most of you in here are on my email list, so I could just send it to you. And then he was like, essentially talking about his ministry in a way that was like, I'm doing way more through my church planting ministry than the SBC has ever done. So yeah. even if this is my last time, like I'm doing a mic drop on the way out. So even yeah. like I, on the one hand, I mean, I think he, how would you respond in that situation when the convention is some at least are saying you should be kicked out? You know, it would be hard to know how to respond to that. But on the other hand, yeah, it know. just it's, seems it's so that... bizarre to me that, that, that it even happened. Yeah, I, I don't know what rules or like, shifting of the rules is allowed it to happen i'm sure uh, adam greenway could straighten us out uh in that particular regard <laughs> but uh you know it, i i do think it's kind of fun like what other church like in the history of the SBC has had like an opportunity the pastors had an opportunity it's like been kicked out like during the conservative resurgence did, did they allow every pastor who they because they kicked out a bunch of churches back in the day mm-hmm. uh, who okay. were like super liberal or whatever did they allow every pastor who were like on the, on the chopping block to um, like come and say a few words? And did those words amount to I'm, I'm cooler than you and I've done more stuff. Well, and um, you know, president Litton's mic was on the whole time. So he's like, mm-hmm, like yeah. agreeing along the way with things. So it definitely gave a feel of like the people on the p- platform are really supportive of Lytton or, I mean, I'm sorry, of, of Warren. Um, And, and then like, you know, I don't know how much to even care about some of these things and, and I'm conflicted about it because there, there are those, there's the Southern Baptist statement of faith and constitution. And um, you've, you've kind of, signed up to be part of that so you should abide by it or maybe you should chat on your own i don't know but um but then also a a point to be made about internal resistance you know in his mind i imagine you know yeah but then there's also the fact that whether you like their philosophy of ministry or not um maybe there are a lot more christians who you know, wouldn't otherwise be Christians outside of this ministry. You know, we can't deal with the counterfactuals of who would and wouldn't come to faith, of course. But the fact is that this guy has been partnering partnering with the SBC for a long time. So there's reason to offer goodwill. But then there's the cynical side that says, if this was a church of 100 people and not like one of the largest mega church sub-denominations within the SBC, they just would have been dismissed without any question, you know? So, so I think those are all pieces of, 
the frustration that the messengers have with everything that took place today. Yeah. And again, I, I don't really care about the conversation, I, but I only, but I do care to say that I think it's oriented in the exact way that we talked about earlier, which is, you know, one of Rick Warren's biggest justification is like, we're doing way more stuff than you. Uh, which is again just an efficient we're just more we're more efficient than you so like who cares what we do or what we believe or what sort of practices we're trying to steward or what sort of uh what sort of tradition we're caring for where we're getting stuff done whatever stuff done means which ultimately is that it's that that's an emotivist case right as, as alistair mcintyre would say in other words whatever i feel to be true and good is true and good and I'm justifying that based upon how efficient I am at getting there. Yeah. And, yeah, and I think that sort of mode of conversation is what I, I think is problematic in general. Yeah. Yeah. And it makes sense that Saddleback churches in the SBC could work together so well for so long because of that yeah. push for efficiency. It just happens to be, at least on this issue, that the values or virtues declared in the Baptist faith and message are different than the values and virtues declared in this move, if it is a change of ordaining women as children's pastors in the Saddleback Church world. Yeah, 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 sure. Well, Mitch, I want to shift the conversation um, to our final topic of that the night, and that is the sexual abuse task force and the action taken by the convention today. The sexual abuse task force was formed really as a result of some of the decisions of the meeting last year of the convention. Um, And it really is a result of questions about the way that the executive committee of the Southern Baptist Convention had been handling cases of sexual abuse allegations within the denomination for a long time. Uh, So in the last annual meeting, the convention voted in favor of Guidepost Solutions, this outside organization, conducting an investigation of the way that the executive committee had handled these reports. And what's more, the convention essentially instructed that the executive committee was to waive attorney-client privilege. And at that meeting, there was this huge debate because when motions are made from the floor and a motion is a call to action, um, those motions are often automatically assigned for an entity just to take care of as a matter of business not for the convention to exercise authority in. And they automatically said, you know, this motion for the executive committee to have an external investigation investigation done, they, they just sent that straight for the executive committee to decide. And members yeah. got up from the floor and objected and said, if they need to be investigated, why should we allow them to, to decide whether or not they should be investigated? And the convention right. won out, say, and, and they essentially forced this investigation to happen that I don't think otherwise would have. And then even with the call to waive attorney-client privilege so that nothing could be hidden, many on the executive committee balked at that and they refused to do it. And it was only through a lot of pressure, the eventual resignation of so many on the executive committee that there was a waiving of attorney-client privilege. So that eventually did happen. 
following dozens of resignations in October of 2021. Uh, they waived attorney-client privilege to provide full transparency, which also opened them to a bunch of liability and lawsuits and all the rest. Um, so then on May 22nd of this year, Guidepost Solutions released its findings, including a credible allegation of sexual assault against a senior vice president of evangelism at the North American Mission Board, not to mention, you know, pretty obvious inc- incidences where incidents, that's what I'm trying to say, where the executive yeah. committee either uh, failed to respond appropriately or maybe even tried to force people who are making allegations to be quiet or just ignoring them. You know, it seemed like there were a lot of problems. So several recommendations came out of this from guideposts to the executive committee. And then the executive committee essentially brought two recommendations to the convention today, and they were eventually passed. But Mitch, I'd be interested in anything you'd want to fill the listeners in on this whole issue of sexual abuse in the Southern Baptist Convention and the response that is now going to take place. Yeah, I think it's worth just like pausing. I mean, that was a great overview and just recognizing how terrible news this really is. I mean, we have members of the executive committee for years hiding, suppressing abuse victims, protecting those who are abusers, uh, misleading the convention about the extent to which there were these cases. Uh, And then even to have executive committee members and private email correspondences belittle and make fun of or, or, or speak lightly of uh, abuse victims is, I mean, in one sense, it's heartbreaking, but, you know, in another sense, it's angering that this would be the case. And so if you're a church in the Southern Baptist Convention and this post, you know, this report comes out, uh, then I have serious um, really serious concerns about how our managerial class in the uh, in the SBC is running things, and perhaps the bureaucracy of the SBC is partly to blame. So it's not just individuals at the top. Perhaps the system itself needs to be changed because it was able the system itself was able to hide and it was able it, it you know the the rules and the roberts rules of order you know and, and you know individuals getting to decide what what goes to uh, the, the the convention and what what needs to stay in committee that's all decided by a, a, a sort of bureaucratic process that obviously failed to achieve true justice for abuse victims. And so I think there's, you know, we should be asking some serious structural questions as well as some serious personnel questions about who are those who would make up our executive committee and our our committee on committees and 
whatever. I keep saying our, but you know what I mean? I'm just, it's well, you are a member of a Southern Baptist church. So they, you know, SMI. So in a, in some way they are representative of our representatives, right? Yeah. To the, to, as long as I'm a member of the SBC, then it, 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 and as long as you are, and as long as sort of we are corporately, it's going to be important that we think long and hard about both the structure and the people that control our, the, our denomination, uh, because those things clearly have failed to produce a just system. Uh, and at the end of the day, uh, the, the, the Guidestone report was sort of earth shattering. Now, the reality is it's going to be hard. And this is what the task force that got together and wanted to, before they made two propositions or whatever, uh, they had a list of challenges to, it, you know, for what, what, adopting any sort of fix to this you know and so they one challenge is just the autonomy of baptist churches the church polity each church is completely autonomous so you're essentially asking each church to to submit to some if you are gonna you know ask each church to submit to some sort of oversight by the um you know some sort of body that would exist above the church and sort of keep an eye on those things then you know, that is one that might be perceived by some churches as a potential threat to how the very core of what a Baptist is. Um, mm -hmm. And then on the other hand, it was kind of just offering mere suggestions to how a each state and each state convention would instantiate some sort of role that would provide some sort of oversight, some sort of, uh, you know, help. And at the end of the, and, and again, a lot of these, a lot of these, some of these recommendations we boil down to just, you know, we just need someone who is thinking about this, who is in this office, you know, who has some oversight here and reports directly to this governing body over here. That still doesn't quite address the structural problem. You know, if, if there's, if these, Whoever you put in place in each sort of, you know, if you did place, let's say, for example, you to fix or to provide some oversight here, you did place some individual or some organization over um, having some sort of oversight in local churches and they reported to each sort of state convention and then they sort of reported again to the convention more broadly, um, you know, are they reporting directly to the members and therefore they have a report that they give uh, the uh, in the actual meeting or are they going to report to the executive committee that then again like typically is the case and then the executive committee or the committee of committees gets to decide you know what shows up um, in in the annual meeting um, so i didn't really see too many of those i mean maybe there was i need to go back and maybe i need to give more credit regardless the two sort of proposed solutions here. One was to create, the first one was to create a little organization that would focus on, on this issue of how the SBC handles abuse. Um, and the other one was to make 
and sustain using a third party a list of those who had been credibly uh, accused of of you know sexual abuse such mm-hmm. that you know because the recidivism rate is so high for sexual abuse um you know it it could be and it has been the case that uh you know a pastor who's accused of some sort of um terrible injustice then just moves to another church and that other church that doesn't know right because of you know this is a this is a case where the radical autonomy of each Baptist church is actually a threat to the sheep, mm-hmm. right? Because yeah, and, you may not have access to the background knowledge. Yeah, and the data is important for that because I think the conviction rate for sexual abusers is really low, low. but yeah. the re- repeated action rate is really really high. So the the whole controversy over this list is, you know, some might say, well, why don't we just use whatever sexual predator list the government puts together, while others are saying, well, almost, you know, there's such a small percentage of sexual predators who actually make it on that list because most of them aren't convicted or aren't until after they've already abused dozens of individuals. Uh, So we need that list. Um, and then there are questions about like, what if, what does it mean for someone to have a credible allegation against them versus a spiteful allegation or something like that? Um, so I understand that there are questions here, but I was quite shocked, Mitch, that the, the recommendations by the task force essentially represent the very bare minimum of the recommendations by the external investigators, you know, the, the initial in, I I don't know if you read the 288 page report or not. Um, but at the end of that report, they provide a bunch of recommendations and they provide two tracks. One track is the formation of another entity within the Southern Baptist convention that's fully funded in staff that puts together materials, provides guidance for best practices for churches that essentially works towards reforming the structure and practices of the convention. And that route was completely rejected. So then they gave an alternative route with the, you know, minimal option and according to guideposts recommendation, which was a standing committee for at least 10 years. Well, the committee that the central, the task force advocated for is one that can just be renewed annually if needed. Uh, So there was some debate on the floor about this measure. I was quite shocked that there was any because these actions are so minimal. And more than that, the initial idea that the funding for this was going to come from the International Mission Board was circumvented by the fact that Send Relief, which is something different and not funded by the cooperative program, offered to fund the $3 million. So it wasn't like they're fewer missionaries being sent out because money's being diverted. So I was just shocked that there was any debate at all and that the recommendations are so minimal. Yeah, I think that is a little bit upsetting. uh, I think that'll be upsetting to a lot of people um, that we took the sort of lowest common denominator approach. Um, You know, and I, I think largely that has to do with a core value of Baptist polity you know, um, 
I think it's just hard to get away from that, uh, which is just church autonomy. And the, uh, the fact that what church, what, what, what church would submit, what Baptist church would submit themselves to uh, this sort of legend, this sort of body pretty long period of time, you know, it may be that, and this is why it's probably renewed annually because, you know, the political sentiment right now, maybe you know, all the, all the, the, the good young folk are eager to, uh, you know, make changes and pursue social revolution and this will sort of pacify them. Uh, but yet we also have the, you know, they also have the ability to have an off ramp for this group and they can, you know, slowly reduce this group to nothing you know, over the course of, you know, a couple of years. So, yeah, I think not having something more substantial uh, is, is a real threat to genuine change. And again, I think the structure problem isn't helped by creating more structure. Maybe that can create guiding guidelines, but yeah, it, it was it was a it was a bit frustrating, and, and this is obvious. This is, needs to be a, I think, a big concern. I think, at the end of the day, our, you know, a slightly younger generation um, of constituents in the SPC, um, this is a bigger issue for them, and that's why you see, uh, you know, young SPC members uh, joining other denominations. That's mm-hmm. a very common trend these days. Yeah. No, Mitch, you might not be able to speak into this issue at all because I don't know what your awareness of the issues are. And I'm asked, I'm, I'm about to ask a question about an issue that I don't even know what I'm getting into because all I saw was what happened on the floor of the convention today. Um, but there was a gentleman named Tom Buck and his wife who made a motion that Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary was invested investigated based on the way they handled something to do with sexual abuse situation related to this guy's wife. I don't know all of the details, um, but that motion was automatically passed on to Southeastern to make a decision on. So I don't know Southern Baptist polity enough. I don't know if there's something else going on in this situation that maybe is more politically motivated than actually motivated. But it seems to me that what happened last year, where the motion that was passed on to the executive committee was put to a stop and it was decided on the convention floor, that didn't happen here. It's still being just passed on to the institution or entity that apparently is being called on to be investigated. Do you have anything you could shed light on this? Is this an, a situation where Southern Baptists just spoke really definitively perhaps on sexual abuse in one area, but they're committing the same errors in another, or is there more going on here? You know, I have no idea. Okay. But here's my really cynical take that I think that rules those that know the rules and those that know the Roberts rules of order and all the, you know, this is why, you know, Congress has a parliamentarian, you know, so that, you know, Congress knows how and uh, to essentially what rules to break and what rules not to break. Uh, at the end of the day, those that know the rules and those that, that steward those rules are best positioned to be able to use those rules to achieve their agenda or 
or to achieve, achieve what's politically expedient. And when you last year, when you had the whole convention up in arms about the Guidestone thing, um, it was a lot easier to say, hey, we're not going to send this to the executive committee, the very people we're going to, uh, you know, we're going to change the rules, interpret them in a different way, such that mm -hmm. we can bring this right to the people and they can vote on this, you know, democratically right now. Whereas in a case where you've got, you know, one man and one woman who are just asking for some justice, uh, you know, or at least someone to look in their direction, uh, there's less political hay to be made. There's less people to win to your side, to your tribe, mm -hmm. by making a, you know, so my, my get, that's my cynical take is that there was less at stake and therefore the, the quote rules were followed, you know, but the logic I think breaks down, you know, because mm -hmm. it's essentially the very same thing that happened last year. Yeah. Well, Mitch, I want to, in just a moment, ask you what advice you would give to someone who's frustrated by the SBC and to briefly um, maybe guess at what the next few years of SBC life will look like. Um, but before, before I ask you that, is there anything else that came up today that you think would be helpful to talk about on the podcast tonight? Um, nothing that comes to mind. I mean, I, I didn't watch the whole meeting. Um, it's, it's a little bit mind numbing, a lot of reports. Um, and honestly, it, the, I, I, it's a, it's, a, it's always a little it's always a little bit disappointing i think coming away from these these meetings i think so, too much is tried to cram and it is such a short period of time and it's a very inefficient process and yeah it's uh it, it, and unfortunately that process is played out for everyone to see mm -hmm. so so what would you what, what advice would you give to someone who's feeling the kind of discouragement that you're articulating here? And um, what, what would you sort of picture as the next few years of Southern Baptist life? Yeah, I, I guess I would sort of look to church history here and just say that in the history of the church, there's been seasons where the church has needed to sort of go through a, a, a purgation, a, a sort of purging. I mean, think about the children of Israel. You know, they're wandering through the wilderness. They're complaining. They're on their way to the promised land. And then instead of going into the promised land, a certain gener mumbling generation uh, refused to trust in Yahweh. And in, in, as, in condemnation, um, God doesn't strike them dead. He's merciful. Uh, but he does say this generation will all pass away. And then a new people, a new fresh people who are not corrupted by the influences of those, this older generation that was mumbly and complaining and did not trust Yahweh will not enter into Canaan. It, it was very important that that generation die because Canaan was supposed to be a, a new Eden. It was supposed to be a new heaven on earth. So God cannot establish his kingdom or let me put it this way, it's necessary for God as he's establishing his community, as he's establishing his kingdom on, on earth to urge his people, to cleanse his people um, 
Otherwise, the people will be part of the problem. That's really the story of the Old Testament. And I think that's true of the SBC. I think God in his sovereignty has seen fit to use many denominations, uh, Anglican, Presbyterian, Lutheran, uh, Baptist, others, to spread the gospel, to plant churches, um, you know, but each denomination, I think, I, I think the Southern Baptist is coming into a time, the Southern Baptist Convention, I think it's coming into a season where it's going to be necessary for, I, I hate, it's not even really generational, but just there needs to be a season of, of purging. And I think if we take the long view here, I think there's a place for the Southern Baptist Convention to play in God's plan. Um, it may not be right now. We may be really frustrated with how things are going on, what things are going on right now. But, um, you know, at the end of the day, it probably is, you know, and, and, Given you know a hundred, given a scope of a hundred, two hundred, five hundred years, I think there's a place for the Southern Baptist Convention. I think, Mitch, both you and I speak about these things at some level as outsiders because we found ourselves in the convention. We haven't always been Southern Baptists. Um, right. We found ourselves part of Southern Baptist churches and Southern Baptist seminaries and Southern Baptist denominational life. You know, both of us grew up in an independent fundamental Baptist world. And at least for some time, we always thought the, the SBC is the scary liberal beast out there or something like that. And then as we started to sure. experience it, we appreciated a lot of what was at least our realms of experience in Southern Baptist life. There's a reason we ended up going to Southern Baptist seminaries, right? Um, but I think as we've been part of it, and as we found ourselves in churches that are part of it, we're faced with the question of, are, are we going to become Southern Baptists or not? You know, we found ourselves here, and right. are we going to take up the hard work that maybe is required for people in the Southern Baptist Convention. And this, of course, is a conversation that we recently had as a church. Our church is historically Southern Baptist, but um, the way that we operate in the Southern Baptist world, most of our members have never been a, at a Southern Baptist church, so they were part of our church. So we don't even right. maybe know what it means to be Southern Baptist. So we've sort of been on the sidelines, and, and there may come a time where we have to decide are we going to be all in here and try to find a way forward in the SBC that will help maybe the SBC find a way forward as well? Or, or do we start to um, pull back and, and reduce that connection to the Southern Baptist Convention? And I think there are probably a lot of churches in the same boat. Uh, these are hard decisions, but I think what I'd want to say to someone who's heavily discouraged about the recent events in the Southern Baptist Convention is that we, we are seeing in the report, in what you hear from the floor, in some of the, the tweets or social media posts or news articles, some of the very worst of the Southern Baptist Convention. Um, but also those things are being made visible because of some of the best parts of the Southern Baptist Convention. You know, this, this investigation would never have taken place unless the messenger spoke. 
Um, and so I think in depending on how you want to look at it, there you're seeing the best and the worst at the same time. And really in that, there comes the call to action to determine, are we going to be a part of this or are we not? And so if I'm looking at the future of the Southern Baptist Convention, uh, I, I don't know that I see a lot of massive change, but I think the change that will happen that's not noticed is in the majority of churches that don't show up to the meeting deciding are we going to say part of a convention that we're not speaking into? Um, mm-hmm. I, th- I think the regular divisions and fracturings in the convention, those will go on and they'll find, you know, there's a homeostasis there maybe of dividedness that, that will always be there. But yeah. I think churches who don't show up to the meeting are starting to say, um, we've either got to be all in or we're going to be all out. And, and maybe that's the big change that is impossible to see just by the nature of what it is. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's good. Mitch, this has been a great time to talk and catch up. I know you're especially tired. It's an hour later, even where you are than where I am. So I thank you for recording this episode tonight and uh, Lord willing, you'll have enough energy for us to be able to do a recap of day two tomorrow evening as we see the Southern Baptist Convention come to an end. Uh, There are many other topics that we could have talked about. Plagiarism of sermons. We could have talked about uh, some of the positive things of the convention, the sending of 50 more missionaries, you know, to foreign places, church plants, all of these sorts of things. We could have gotten into the good and the bad of those things, but... um, there's so much to talk about. We can't talk about it at all. So thank you for taking the time to talk with me here. Yeah, of course. It's good to be here. This podcast is the ministry of Resurrection Church in Burnsville, Minnesota. If you'd like to learn more about us, or if you have questions about the Southern Baptist Convention and how our church relates to it, you can email our church office at office at clbcmn.org or visit our website for more information at www.resurrectionmn.org.